Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fireside Chat number... 302. 302. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's so sorry. I'm, now I'm feel guilty. <laughs> if I made you feel sorry for saying O rather than zero, I feel bad. Okay, hello. 302. Wow. Well, no dog yet, because the... I guess, is it fair to say successor to Otto? I guess so, for the fireside chat. Mr. Tubbs is still a puppy and not exactly aching to cooperate here. One day, hopefully. Anyway, great to be with you. I'm Dennis Prager. This is my chance to offer you some thoughts about life, about, yeah, about life. It's hard for me to imagine anything about life that doesn't preoccupy me. Just that's my nature and it has been since I was a kid. And then take your questions and hopefully have a positive impact on, you, on your thinking. There is a study that just came out, or a report, not a study, from the United States CDC, that's our big health authority, Center for Disease Control, and it is about suicide in the United States. It is at the highest rate ever recorded since, they, as they put it, the dawn of World War II, so almost 100 years. And I, I wonder, I'm surprised that it was that high then. Anyway, it's obviously high, and it's high, higher in, in every age group though certain age groups it's even higher than in others. If I recall correctly, it is the second highest form of death for those, uh, I think it's 25 to 50, or 25 to 54, whatever it is, which is, a, it, it was fourth two years ago. It has gone from the fourth highest to the second highest reason for death of people who were that young. So why am I bringing this to attention? Because I've talked about depression in America and sadness. I'll tell you why. What fascinated me about the report, as written by the AP, the Associated Press, and reprinted in the New York Post, among other places, was the reasons experts, experts gave for why there is so much suicide in the United States. But first a word on experts. So I have no idea how you will react to what I'm about to say. <laughs> I'm taking a risk here. But I, I've taken these risks all of my life. This is what I think. And people are free, obviously, to reject it, even to reject me, or to find it thought-provoking, your choice. Over the course of my life, when, and certainly now post-lockdowns and COVID, whenever I see experts say, I assume I will hear or read something stupid. I don't always, I'm saying I assume. It may not be, I fully acknowledge that. But my immediate assumption is it will be foolish 
because it usually is. That, that's exactly what occurs. Now, I want to make something clear. If, I, if somebody said, uh, a, a, bi a biology expert said that mitochondria, that part of the cell that I think produces energy, I believe it is, whatever it is, part of the cell, does the following, I will, I will assume it's not stupid because it's a fact. But wherever there is an idea, a suggestion, an, an assumption, I assume it will be foolish. Experts told us that it was a good thing to close schools and the, uh, it wasn't a good thing, it was a bad thing, entirely bad, as Sweden proved because it kept all its schools open for kids up to the age of 16. And there are many other reasons, but I won't get that much off track. So sure enough, this is what the experts, I don't even know, what does that mean, experts? What does it mean to be an expert on suicide? Seriously, it's an interesting question. What does that mean? Clearly, it, it, it's not an expert on how people commit suicide. Th that's a fact and that I wouldn't debate. Do they hang themselves? Do they take pills? Do they shoot themselves? An ex I would accept an expert's statistical statement about that. But why people commit suicide, that's not a matter of expertise. That is a matter of wisdom. Wisdom and expertise have nothing to do with one another. Nothing. I'll never forget when I, I, I remember the day I distinguished between expertise and wisdom. Isn't that funny? I remember, I don't remember the date, but I remember the day. There was a full page ad in the New York Times many years ago. Said Nobel laureates, people who won the Nobel Prize, come out against capital punishment. And there was the Nobel Prize, you know, for biology, for chemistry, for I think math is there's a Nobel Prize there. And I remember thinking, what the hell do I care? What a Nobel Prize in physics thinks about capital punishment. Why, is, why does his greatness or her greatness in knowledge of physics in any way render his or her judgment on capital punishment more valid than my electricians? Because people confuse expertise with wisdom. That's the day I realized how foolish it is. Okay, it's a long introduction to the latest nonsense from experts. So if you read the article, and you can see it all quoted in my column this week at DennisPrager.com and at many other places. They gave three reasons for this great amount of suicide and, and great increase in suicide in America to unprecedented levels. They were uh, increased number of depressed Americans, lack of enough mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, etc., and the uh, great availability of guns. 
So let me take them each. Number one, why are more people in America committing suicide? The experts tell us because of the rise in the number of people who are depressed. Now, I'm just waiting a moment for it to sink in. How meaningless that response is. I'll, I'll, I'll show you, I think this will be effective. Happy people do not commit suicide. Okay? So the fact that there are more depressed people, of course there are more depressed people, since only depressed people commit suicide. <laughs> it doesn't tell me anything. It is an incredibly non-informative response. Oh, really? I would never have thought of that. There are more depressed people. Isn't the question, why are there more depressed people? Isn't that the question? Not, why is there more suicide because there are more depressed people? Okay, that's reason number one, which of course is, uh, is not a good reason. So reason number two, the paucity of mental health professionals. Okay, the number of psychologists Psychiatrists and other forms of therapists in the United States is very large. We may not have enough, but that's fine. Is, is the relationship between number of therapists and suicide, is it clear? I don't know the answer. But I would not put on the list a not enough mental health professionals on the top of my list. They're not on my top three reasons for why there is such an increase in suicide. We had, after all, the same number a few years ago. Why the increase? Third, the availability of guns, to which my only response is, guns were even more available in the past because there were fewer gun laws in the past. There are more gun laws in America today than there were 50 years ago. Or is the increase due to people shooting themselves? Now, I will admit that it is harder to commit suicide with sleeping pills, let's say, or carbon monoxide in your garage or hanging yourself, or jumping off a building, than shooting yourself. I acknowledge that fact. Truth is truth. But I don't believe the increase in suicide uh, and the availability of guns, uh, it, it, or the availability of guns is a major factor that it would be listed in the top three. So I have a different list of my top three, and in fact, really, it's top two. Loneliness and meaning. That's why I believe there is a very great increase in the number of suicides in America. Loneliness, by the way, is a, an international problem. It is not just an American problem. There was actually, I believe, in the United Kingdom, there was a a minister of loneliness for a while in the government. 
It was in, in Japan, it is a huge problem. There are people who are dying in their apartments and people don't know it until the smell overpowers people in other apartments. Nobody knew they died. They're so alone. Loneliness has been an increasing issue since the, the, the 1960s. In the 1990s, there's a very famous book called Bowling Alone about how in America, the great, all, virtually every great giver of companionship was in decline. Church attendance and Kiwanis, Lions and Rotary Club attendance, bowling leagues, that's why it's called Bowling Alone, Wherever people had gotten together before, they were doing less of it. And now compound that with fewer families. What's one of the greatest assuagers of loneliness is being married and having a family. But fewer people are married. Do you know in America at this moment, one quarter, one out of every four people in America at the age of 40 has never been married. Not married and divorced. Never been married. The, there are 7 million uh, American males, I think it's uh, 25 to 50, or, or even less than 50, healthy and not in the workplace. They're not looking for work. They're just, wherever they are, playing video games and partying and drinking and, and drugs and I don't know, whatever else they're doing. But they're not looking for work and they're not looking to make a family. Vast numbers of American women don't think that it's critical to get married. Career, career is the be-all and end-all. So the loneliness is a massive, massive difference. I remember, I wrote about my parents. And by the way, I should add, both my parents worked full-time, just for the record, which is atypical for women of that age, but she did. And my, par my mother, every, every week, went to a synagogue, we're a Jewish family, she went to a synagogue sisterhood meeting I wonder how many, how many synagogues even have a sisterhood anymore. My father every week went to a synagogue brotherhood meeting. My father was on the board of directors of the synagogue. My, both my parents were members of what they called a study group, where they would get together with a few couples every other week at one of their homes. They'd alternate homes where refreshments were served, and they would study, I think, usually a religious book, not necessarily, whatever they studied. It was called the, the study group. Plus, every Saturday, and for obviously Christians for every Sunday, they went, to, they went to synagogue. And it's an important thing for me to note here. A lot of people who leave religion say, oh, people go to church, oh, it's just a social occasion. What's wrong with that? Why is that bad? If religion brings people together, isn't that beautiful? If it's not all that religiously uplifting, 
but they got together every single week? Why is that not valuable in and of itself? People, people don't think clearly. <laughs> it's one of my laments in life. It's a beautiful thing if, 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 if church or synagogue is a social occasion. And, and, and it's not, for nobody is it just a social occasion. There's, there's some uplift, let's be honest. Maybe it's two minutes worth, but there's some. But they get together with other people. And if you stop going, you don't have that community. So family, religion, uh, social groups, bowling leagues, glee clubs, all of these things, gone or at least reduced in case of the family. Loneliness is a curse. You know the first thing God says in the Bible about humanity? The very first thing God says. It's not good for man to be alone. And by the way, for those of you interested in theology, a Christian pastor made a brilliant point. I don't know his name. I only know it's brilliant. And it's in my Bible commentary in the book of Genesis. God says, looking at Adam, the first human being, not good for man to be alone. Interesting. This pastor made a great point. Theoretically, Adam was not alone. He had God. This pastor made the brilliant point, while God is necessary, even God is not sufficient. We, God made us to need people. We don't only need God. It sounds heretical, but it's beautiful. It's not heretical. Not good for us to be alone. It isn't. You should get married. You should make a family. You should have friends. You should see them regularly. You should be part of, of some social groups. And the second reason is meaning. Meaning is the greatest need the human being has after food. It goes food, then meaning. Not sex. Sex is, a, is a, obviously a deep need. But it is possible to be happy without sex and with meaning. But it is not possible to be happy with sex and no meaning. Meaning is, is, is the key. And with the breakdown of two awesome values in so many Americans' lives, God and country, gone. Overwhelmingly a secular generation and a generation that has been taught that your country stinks. There is no meaning to be gotten from being, in our case, an American. The American women's soccer team in the World Cup was just playing. And the Daily Mail, which is British-based, had a very interesting article showing the American women on the U.S. team and playing against the Netherlands women in one of their games. And it showed the Netherlands women arm in arm, gustily, loud, joyously singing the Dutch national anthem because they play the national anthems before the games. Half the Americans 
would not sing it, would not put their hand on their heart, just stood there like stone. And nobody sang it gustily. Some would be, you could see, mouthing it. The left has succeeded in the United States of raising a generation of people embarrassed to be Americans. The freest country in the history of the world. The country to which more people have moved from other countries to seek freedom and prosperity and to build a life than any other country in the world's history. This, so, in fact, the very term God and country is laughed at by the left. Laughed at. But if you don't have God and country, what do you have? Equity and inclusion? So maybe that's why there's an increase in suicide. Loneliness and the death of meaning. Just a thought. Okay, let's see what you folks have to say. And we begin with... Hello, I'm James. I'm old. I'm from Mesa, Arizona. Uh, first, I just wanted to say how much I enjoy the master's program on Daily Wire, and I've recommended it to everyone I know. Um, I just regret not getting to know you earlier, and I blame Rush Limbaugh for that. Anyways, my question is about retirement. I know what you love, what you do, and you're never going to retire, but for those of us who are retired, how would you describe a useful and fulfilling retirement for the rest of us? Thank you. That was great. That was truly great. By the way, for those of you not familiar with, I got it, what he mentioned, I have done a program for Daily Wire called the Master's Program, and it is one of the most important series of talks I've ever given. So you might, you might want to check that out. Yes, I don't intend to retire. That is correct. Why would I? <laughs> I want to touch lives, and I have the energy and health to do so. And the means, like this, I'm very lucky. So those of you who are retired, the, there is a, a, a really, there's one obvious answer. Be of service to others. Volunteer time to do something with others. Again, my parents, who lived to 89 and 96 respectively, in their 80s, decided to volunteer to uh, teach kids in their community at the public school. They loved it. I think the kids loved it, but I know they loved it. There is nothing better in life than being needed. Everyone wants to be needed. That is a deep yearning in the human condition. So somehow, and it shouldn't be hard, figure out a way to be of service to others. That, was, that would be my first. Second, I would take up a project to deepen myself as a person. For, take up a musical instrument. Learn a foreign language. That's just the two, two that, that come to my mind. There, there is, 
it's got to be a project. That's, that's my point. You, you need to embark on a project. Read the great works that have been published in history. Don't just play golf. That's what I'm saying. Good luck. Stephanie, 32 years old, Nashville, Tennessee. Hello, Mr. Prager. I'm getting married soon, and I couldn't be happier. All right. I have been an avid listener of yours for a number of years now. I recently listened to your master's program. Look at that. Good. On marriage. And it brought me to tears. Good. The master's program is at the Daily Wire. It's, we're very close with Daily Wire, Prager you. I couldn't help but agree with everything you were saying and responded a wonderful marriage to your experiment. Yes, my experiment is I ask young women, it's well known, right? Yes. I ask young women if they're next to me in line, getting on a plane, if it's a waitress, <laughs> I just ask young women. So I'm offering you two guarantees. You can only choose one, but know that even the one you didn't choose can still happen. It's just not guaranteed. One guarantee is a great marriage. The other guarantee is a great career. Which guarantee would you choose? So she, that's what she's referring to, she, the great marriage. Okay. My question for you is what should I write to my husband on the morning of our wedding? Wow. That's a new one. I love to write and plan on giving him a card to read in private before the ceremony. I would love to hear your advice and wisdom on this. Thank you for everything. I can't wait to introduce our future children to your programs. That's really nice. What should you write to your husband on the wedding day for him to read in private? Well, Obviously, things that only you would know with regard to him, if that's what you would like. I love you because dot, 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 that's possible. But here's one that you may not have thought of. Make a promise. I promise to never take you for granted. Nothing kills marriages as much as taking your spouse for granted. And if you take that vow, you may violate it. That's possible. But the very fact that you took that vow on your wedding day and put it in writing may well affect you 10 years from now or 20 years from now. But that's what kills marriages. More marriages are killed by taking your spouse for granted than even by an infidelity. A lot of marriages survive an infidelity. It's a painful period, but a lot of marriages actually not only survive, but get better over time after that. No marriage survives contempt. And that's what taking for granted is. It's, it's a form of contempt. So 
that's that's my I think helpful piece of advice on that. What's our timing? Uh, around twenty-seven. If you could all see the motions <laughs> that Megan goes through when I ask her what is our timing, <laughs> it is almost as if I would say, "Would you prefer to be shot or, or frozen?" <laughs> It's, it's it's a whole system. I love Megan, if that's not obvious to you. So <laughs> that was precious. 27. I know what you're doing. You're wrestling. Is it a lot? Is it a little? Do we have the time for <laughs> yeah. another question? I know exactly what you're going through. We have a time for one more question. This is such a long question. We may, we may have a time for the question, but not the answer. It's okay. Isabella, 61, Long Island, New York. Hi, Dennis. I think you, you need to rethink and expand your knowledge about the importance of self-esteem in children. It is important, and you failed to bring up how parents that criticize, put down, demean their children can destroy their lives. My brother was berated and belittled by my father, and it ruined him. He is self-loathing because of it and has never been able to maintain relationships, feels chronically lonely, is bitter and unforgiving of my father. He's that way because my father put him down when he should have been building him up. If he were praised by my father and made to feel good about himself, he would have been a more stable, happy person instead of a tortured soul who has never felt loved. Praising your kids is showing your love for them. It doesn't spoil them. It builds them up and, in my opinion, is critical in their mental health throughout their life. Thanks for listening. For the record, I love to be challenged. And it's part of the reason that I think I have a, a lot of good ideas in life is that I have talked with, not to, with people for 40 years doing radio, talk radio. I get feedback like this. People challenge me. When I say that we have, we have gone way too, far, way too far in self-esteem, this is a good example because we talked about this before. I'm very precise with words. And people often hear what I didn't say. The fact that I think we have gone too far with self-esteem does not mean I advocate demeaning your child. It doesn't occur to me. It's like if I said, you know, this room is really too warm, and then someone said, you're right, let's make it 60 degrees. <laughs> or 50 degrees. The opposite of a bad is usually bad. <laughs> the, or the better, the opposite of an extreme is the other extreme, and then neither is good. You don't demean your child, and you, you don't keep praising them. You praise them when they've earned the praise. Otherwise, they won't, they won't be ready for life. Life doesn't praise you all the time. I remember so much of my career, people would say, so do you get a lot of uh, positive feedback from your employers? And I thought, what do I care? 
they keep rehiring me. <laughs> That's the positive feedback. I, 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 I'm not there to be praised by my employers. The fact that they rehire me is, is all I need. That, that's what matters. I'd rather be rehired without praise than fired with praise. <laughs> it's, but, but even if you think your employer should keep praising you, okay, fine. Maybe so. I, I don't think so. But it doesn't happen in real life. Telling your kid you're terrific. Look, in, in, in America, I, I don't know if this is spread to other countries, we give children trophies, trophies, awards, not for winning, just for, quote, participating. I remember when it started, my, my older son was about 11 years old, 10 years old. He was on a baseball team. It was the last game of the season, and he had a trophy. And I knew they came in last, my son's team. Most teams that Prager's are on come in last. And, and he, I go, David, your team came in last. Why did you get a trophy? And with a totally straight face, he said, for participating. you got to be kidding. That's like for breathing. To give a breathing trophy? Uh, this, is, this, is, this has prepared a generation which is quite troubled because they can't handle life. Self-control is much more important than self-esteem. I always tell that to parents. You praise your child when they've earned it. Your task in life is not to make your kid feel good. Your task in life is to make a good adult. Out of, the, out of the child that you're given. That's, that's how I viewed it. That's why I told my kids, I care much more about their character than their grades. That's a good message. So you're right and I'm right. It's very hard to have the, 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 a balanced life. Very, very, very hard. The human being it tends to be, tends to move toward the extremes. You shouldn't praise your child too much and you shouldn't demean your child, but you should criticize your child. My father told me frequently I was lazy. He was right. And so I'm not lazy as an adult because my dad told me I was lazy and I knew when he said it, he was right. <laughs> What's he gonna say, you're a hard worker when I wasn't? What was he supposed to say? His job was not to make me feel good. That's, that's not the parent's job. It's not your job to make them feel bad. It's your job to be a parent. It's a tough job, by the way. It's a tough job. It was, it was a great session. What can I say? Thanks for being with me. See you next week. Thank you for watching this video. To keep PragerU videos free, please consider making a tax-deductible donation.